I think we've got enough hard topics here that could potentially go into soft topics, which is the whole Station 13 thing. Well, like a creme brulee, a hard crust with soft, delicious flan underneath. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I prefer to think of us as like a coconut, you know, a hard shell, but a, a lot of nice kind of sweet <laughs> white liquid on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> or like an armadillo. Hard on the outside, soft on the inside. Armadillos! Recently here in my office, we suffered a bit of a minor minor tragedy. Mm. And that is that my old Elecom mouse that I brought all the way from Japan mm. finally decided to pack its bags and head off to the great, great white halls of Mouse Valhalla, I suppose. <laughs> It's gone to a, a mouse farm in upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And um, I used to swear by the, the mice made by this maker in Japan called Elecom. Mm -hmm. And they are really nothing special. I mean, they're just sort of average, regular, you know, fairly low-budget computer mice. Mm -hmm. Is it just a normal two-button mouse? Normal mouse yeah. shape? Mm. That's right. I mean, there's nothing unusual about it, really. Um, I gone through i think three or four elecom mice in my time in japan mm -hmm. which is sort of averages out to about four years per mouse mm. which is great and i think that um the thing about them was always been that you know there's nothing really special about them but they just seem to be quite well made and uh the cheapest one that they offer like the lowest of the low tier mm -hmm. would always seem to last me many 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 years so before i left japan i thought it would be a good idea to get one. Mm -hmm. uh, so I decided to buy one of Elecom's sort of more higher grade mice, mouses, m mice? Mice. M I think my, mice. Surely mice. And um, brought it with me. Mm -hmm. And so I've been using this one for about, yeah, two or three years, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, it finally decided to pack it in. Yeah, the middle button is the problem. The, the middle button, as in the scroll wheel button. Mm hmm. And you tend to use that a lot if you use audio software because mm. fairly often the middle button tends to be sort of drag drag your timeline left and right. Right. And so uh, my middle button tended to get uh, fairly heavily used and it finally decided to kind of stop working. So it was time to get a new mouse and uh, I was lucky enough to have a friend who was looking for a place to send a duplicate of a mouse that he had. He actually had this Logitech uh, mouse mm -hmm. and um, he had one at home and then uh, his home computer became his work computer and then from work he liked this model so much that he had bought a second version of it All to right. use at work. But then he had, so now he had two of them basically. Mm. Uh, so he gave it to me. And it is a, let me just turn it over. It is a Logitech G402. A G402. I'm go I was I was excited because I thought you were going to come out with the name of my mouse and then I'd be able to say that was that's my mouse as well. But no. <laughs> no. It's G402. Yeah. Oh, look at that. That looks like a gamer mouse. It is. Oh. Yeah, it is and I, I can hear you cringe. <laughs> what is it about stuff marketed at gamers that it always has to look like crap? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think basically um, gamers are too busy, you know, basically uh, excelling at their craft that they... they uh... It doesn't look like they've not tried. It looks like they've tried really hard. <laughs> mm. It's it's worse for it. Not this mouse in particular, I just mean gamer stuff generally. 
Like it's always yeah, looks like it's got spikes coming off it and and <laughs> whatnot. Anyway, is it good mass? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a very good mass. So yeah, it does it does look like a gamer mouse, but mm. I mean it is. I mean, does that G glow? Yes, it does. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, it does, and I, it is fairly conservative for a, for, for a as gamer. far as these gamer things go. Yeah, n- yeah, not like some of the razor uh, mice and keyboards that you see, right? raise R. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy with it actually. It's very um uh, it's slightly heavier than a regular mm-hmm. mouse and I the the selling feature of it is that actually it has an accelerometer inside it so that if you are zipping a, zipping it around moving really really quickly playing your Fortnites or your uh, Overwatches or mm-hmm. your uh, or your um I don't know Quake Quake thank you Doom <laughs> then um it can you know keep track of fast movements much better because it's not relying entirely on an optical sensor but it's actually relying also on an accelerometer all right which you know helps me very very little because <laughs> you know, <laughs> rarely do I need to move things around that quickly but it's extremely comfortable and well made and all the switches are very good and uh it does look uh, like feels... it's a, a good shape for the hand yeah it is very comfortable actually and you know i guess uh it's um designed for heavy frequent use and so uh yeah hoping for the best for its durability over the long term mm. but i think that the whole market of you know i was talking to a friend here about he, he's just a sort of a regular Swedish businessman for the aviation industry mm. and I visited his office and he's got the you know the black PC there with the uh, but on the table he's got this gamer keyboard and a gamer mm. mouse mm. all lit up with like LED colors and stuff like that <laughs> and it was just such an odd match for this uh you know regular Swedish businessman to be using this kind of equipment mm. And so I asked him, obviously, like, oh, you, you play games? And he said, no, I don't. But you just can't get a good keyboard these days. And the only keyboards that are decent are the ones that are marketed towards gamers, meaning, you know, these are specifically for people to play games on. Mm. And therefore, you just got to put up with the colors and the funny design because, you know, if you want something that's durable and that feels good to use, then this is this is all there is out there. Mm. Of course, he probably isn't aware of the big big market that there is for programmer keyboards that's true yeah that is the other big market for specialty keyboards not so much mice though programmers a bit allergic to those <laughs> as a set <laughs> yeah and i think um you know if you go into if you're not inclined to sort of research that kind of boutique keyboard sector mm. then you just go into a regular computer shop then yeah you're going to find that the best keyboards there or the best mice there are going to be uh, the gamer ones, right? Even though they're all kind of the design is funny and they've got lights and and as you said spikes and and you know <laughs> aerofoils and speed fins and vents and all this kind of stuff that <laughs> help them go faster. Yeah, it, it's a, it's just a funny thing. So I was actually um, wondering, firstly, what kind of keyboard and oh, actually, I think we've already talked about this. Speaking about keyboards at length, yeah, yeah, but. Have you ever tried a trackball? Yes, a long time ago. I I often toy with the idea of getting a trackball, hmm. but I haven't yet. So I'll I guess I'll go over what I've got now. I use for for a programmer who is allergic to mice. I actually have two. Okay, <laughs> I use both a touchpad and a mouse. Oh wow, nice! At my desk. I have the uh, Apple Magic Touchpad that comes with my Mac. Mm. That is just the 
hands down the best touchpad that exists and it's multi-touch so you can do gestures so you can very quickly move between spaces and go to your desktop or switch between applications uh, all using finger gestures on the touchpad right and then i also have the logitech mx master 2 mouse which is logitech's non-gamer high-end mouse so i guess the immediate question that comes to mind is if you have the touchpad why do you need a mouse i have both for a couple of reasons i like the touchpad for the gestures especially so even if i was using a mouse for everything else it would be worth having a touchpad just for the gestures even if the touchpad didn't act as a mouse right (laughs) if it was just a gesture device Mm. it would be worth the price of entry for me i do actually use both though partly because i think the majority of things, I think, are just as good with a touchpad and a mouse. They, it's much of a muchness. Sometimes I feel like moving my fingers more, in which case I'll use a touchpad. Sometimes I want to move my whole arm, in which case I'll use a mouse. Uh, there are some things, though, that is just better with a mouse. Computer games is one of them. Hmm. Blender and tools like that hmm. is another. Right, sure. Uh, I actually bought this when I was trying to learn to use Blender last year, and that was why I decided to go and buy a mouse right the other reason i like to have both on my desk which this may be a fantasy but i like the idea and it's plausible (laughs) is that by switching between them and never using one or the other too much i might be helping to stave off repetitive strain right injury because i'm not always doing the same action i'm using i'm doing quite different motions with my hands for the different devices so that's another thing that I sometimes I just sort of switch between the two just to avoid repeating the same motions too much. But don't you aren't you doing that anyway by switching between your keyboard and your mouse anyway? Maybe. Yeah. One more can't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Like I mean I think probably I don't know. I was going to say I use the keyboard much more than the other two. Like I'm I'm mainly using the keyboard and so if I'm going to get repetitive strain injury it'll more likely be from the keyboard than the mouse but i don't know i think there's something about the way that you use a mouse that is like particularly prone Mm. to that right i think my i think and again i don't know there's probably been research done on this that may contradict what i'm about to say but i have an instinct that says that mice are worse than touchpads as far as RSI is concerned, hmm. that the, just the way that you hold the mouse and move it around and the angles that your wrist is sort of encouraged to move in, I suspect exclusively using a mouse is worse than exclusively using a touchpad. But that's that may not be true. That's just a, a thing that I uh, believe with no evidence to back it up. <laughs> I uh, can only speak from experience there, but actually I was forced into being touchpad only for about a year Mm. Um, when i say forced because um this was during my transition to sweden Mm. and there were you know some issues with uh, the migration process which meant that we were delayed by a very very long time right and during that time the bulk of my uh, computer equipment including my mouse my elecom mouse mm. um was all packed up in a box mm. and so all i had was my macbook pro and its lovely um touchpad 
Mm. And so for the entire year, I was actually just using the touchpad on the MacBook Pro. Mm. And one key difference, which makes me believe that perhaps a touchpad may not be so much better for your hand than a mice mouse, is that if you do this gesture right now, you'll see what I mean. If you touch your pointer finger onto the table mm-hmm. as if you're touching a touchpad. Mm-hmm. If you now look at your thumb, third, fourth, and fifth fingers, mm-hmm. you're actually straining the top of your hand to keep those elevated to stop them falling down on top of the touchpad. Right. Whereas on a mouse... You can rest. Yeah, all of your other fingers and your thumb are basically resting on the table, so there's no tension in the top of your hand at all. Mm. You might be right. This MX Master mouse as well is is very well shaped for that. Mm, you really right. do sort of cradle it in your hand. Right. Yeah. Um, Trackballs have always intrigued me mm. and I've never had, the, never had the courage to actually buy one. Mm. Strangely, they are extremely popular of all places in the pro audio industry. So you very That's interesting. Yeah, it's very a common thing to see them in use in uh, mixing studios. Mm. Uh, I think it's probably because often mixing studios, you know, the position of the computer will usually be in a place. You know, you may have like a Bluetooth keyboard sitting on top of a mixing console, mm-hmm. or uh, yeah, something like that. So basically, where the, the surface may not necessarily be flat. It may mm. be slightly inclined or there may just be basically be no convenient place for a flat surface for a mouse. Mm. And so it's not uncommon to see in mixing studios to see trackballs mm. because obviously a trackball is just a, a, a unit that just sits in the one place and you just right. put your hand on it. As is a touchpad. Yes, as is a touchpad indeed. Mm. A tra- um, but, you know, of course with a trackball, whether you're going with the type, the more common type that you see, you operate the ball with your fingers and then use your thumb to click it's it's kind of mm. kind of like a recumbent bicycle you know it's, it's kind of, you know you know it's kind of like uh it definitely takes a little bit of of uh courage to sort of migrate to something that's so different to what you'd used to right yeah there's two main kinds and I'm not sure which is the most common because you the other thing you often see is the one where you're manipulating the cursor with your thumb and you click with your mm. fingers. Right, right. Which I feel like I see more often than the one where you're manipulating the trackball with your fingers mm. and okay. clicking with your thumb. But they, they do both. I mean, if you just search for Logitech trackball, for example, you'll get both right. designs. Yeah, I've often, um, I've been really curious to, to try it out one day. But the thing is that when I lived in Japan, you know, the obvious place that you go to try out a mouse mm. is a huge electronics store, like, for example, Yodobashi Camera or Big Camera or Softmap or one of those huge Japanese electronics chains. Mm. And naturally, <laughs> they they have those places are great because they have uh, all the keyboards, all of the mice, all out on display, so you can go and touch them and feel them and figure out which one you think feels best. Mm. And uh, naturally, the trackball trackballs units are there, but all the balls have been stolen. <laughs> <laughs> Even in Japan, that's disappointing. Well, this is this is Osaka Yodobashi Camera, so mm-hmm. you know yeah. it's more uh, more likely there than it might be in in polite Tokyo, where you know something like that would never happen. But yeah, all the the trackballs are usually kind of taken, so it's like, well, I would be nice. It'd be nice to try this if there was an actual ball. Mm. But I think you can't really get a feel for it in a, in a shop anyway. It's something that no, that's right. you've got to take the plunge and use for a while. Now, I remember when I was 
younger, before touchpads became the dominant way to have a mouse pointer on laptop computers, mm. there were a couple of different ways that people tried to do it. One was the famous IBM ThinkPad, mm. which had what was, I think it was officially called the nipple, <laughs> which is the little pointer that sits in the middle between <laughs> between the G and the H key on the keyboard. You've got to wonder, like, didn't anybody sort of say, guys, you know, maybe that's not such a great <laughs> name for it. <laughs> this was the 80s. It was a different time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, you can just imagine, you know, all of the... The, the suits and the marketing people and the technical people. And I don't think it was ever. I yeah, I don't think those people decided. I don't think it really had a name, but the engineers right. all just called it the nipple and that stuck. I don't know if there was another name for it. Yeah, actually, um, Lenovo, who make the ThinkPad now, they, they still have the nipple. Mm. My dad loves them. Mm. My dad is a big fan of the ThinkPad, and he, he basically uh, is a sort of a um, religiously devoted to getting the ThinkPad whenever whenever his computer... <laughs> packs up he'll, he'll still now did he did he notice much of a difference when you know when N- lenovo bought it from ibm he said that the quality improved oh really yeah he said that actually he found that the, the new lenovo models of the thinkpad actually better than the previous ibm oh, ThinkPads. okay fair enough the reason that he likes it is that he finds it very hard to use a touchpad mm. and he loves the nipple because i i think it's I think the the main difference there is that the the, the nipple. Are we going to keep calling it the nipple? <laughs> uh, well, I am looking to see if I can find any information on Wikipedia about. So, <laughs> uh, on Wikipedia, it refers to it as the track point pointer. Oh. Uh, oh, here, and if you click on it, you go to the article pointing stick. The first sentence of which is a pointing stick or nipple mouse is a small joystick used as a pointing device typically mounted centrally in a computer keyboard. Okay. So it is, in parentheses, nipple mouse is the uh, <laughs> the alternative name for pointing stick. Okay. <laughs> you can just see, you know, in the 90s, like this boardroom with all those people lined up there at, at IBM saying with this big <laughs> PowerPoint, dis- you know, PowerPoint presentation up on the wall saying, and we present you... The pointing stick or the nipple. <laughs> and everybody kind of clapping and taking notes and going, hmm, oh, the nipple. Anyway, um, I think I think the reason that my dad enjoys the nipple is because uh, of the resistance. Mm. You know, that with a with a touchpad, and um, I've tried his ThinkPads, you know, the touchpad on the mm-hmm. ThinkPads are very mm. good too. But I think the reason that he, he likes the nipple is because... Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of resistance there. So when mm. you're making these sort of very fine movements of the mouse pointer, it, it feels a little bit easier if, if there's a bit of um, a bit of force required to do that. Mm. You know, it makes it much easier to make these very, very fine uh, movements with it. So Yeah. I was a bit disappointed a few years ago, actually. Well, I guess quite a few years ago now. I was in the market for a very small computer. I wanted something very portable that I could run Linux on and use for various things. And uh, I looked at the ThinkPads because I used to have a ThinkPad, an IBM ThinkPad, which was great. And the one that I used to have had the nipple and two mouse buttons underneath the keyboard, and it had no touchpad. Oh, right. It was just a keyboard 
and the the pointing stick in the middle and the, the two mouse buttons. And at this time, I was thinking I wanted this mainly as a Linux and programming kind of mostly command line machine that I would be using. Mm. And so I didn't really need a touchpad. I wasn't even planning on using the mouse much at all. And I thought it would be perfect if Lenovo now made a ThinkPad that had no touchpad, that was like the old ThinkPads, that was just the keyboard and the two buttons and the, the nipple in the middle. And then they wouldn't have to use the space for the touchpad and they could make it extremely small. It could be just the size of the keyboard. Hmm. Uh, but they don't sell a computer like that anymore. They've all got touchpads. Right. Which I found a little bit disappointing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I love the... Um, I find all touchpads disappointing except for the ones on the uh, on Apple's laptops, which I think are just amazing. Like mm. the, the, the glass top ones where it just defies belief that actually if you turn the power off... Right, they don't click anymore. <laughs> that's right. That You're still pressing in the same way that you are when you're using it with the power on. It's just that it doesn't... It just feels so convincingly like you're actually pressing a button even though actually you're just pushing your finger into a hard surface. But anyway. Right. Yes. Okay, so trackballs and nipples. Oh, yeah. So that was... so. Uh, yeah, so so the IBM ThinkPad with the, with the nipple was one of the ways that they tried to do a mouse pointer, and the other way was trackballs. And my mum had That's right. a little black and white three eight six computer with Windows three point one on it, right? That had a trackball, mm. and it took up the about the same amount of space as the touchpad does in a modern laptop. Mm. But obviously, it's it's sticking out right of the body, right? So they had to have like enough space in the lid for for the trackball to exist between the keyboard and the screen. <laughs> mm, right, right. So I can see why it sort of didn't last, but that was when I first used the trackball, and I used to quite like it. Mm. I found I when they switched to touchpads, I remember thinking that I preferred trackballs. Also, early touchpads were really bad, but I remember thinking this is a mistake. This will never catch on. Mm. They should stick with trackballs. I think that the the modern day trackballs they actually have the same kinds of uh, optical sensors that are detecting the movement. Uh, so it's not actually a physical ball right. on a roller, right? Right. Like those those early ones were. Yeah. I remember. Um, I have f- not so fond memories of uh, cleaning out the. Uh, the um, mouse on the Commodore Amiga. Well, I used to work in an internet cafe. Oh, okay. And so part of my job was to go around like 70 computers and clean out the mice. Right. <laughs> so I, I know what you mean. Yeah, we've uh, come a long way now with uh, touchpads and... Uh, uh... And every, everyone having the internet in their pocket. So the, the notion of an internet cafe now is... Actually, I went into an in- internet cafe when we were in Spain. Right, because we needed to print something, so they do still exist. They are still right. Did you go and uh, go and uh, search for Hotmail on the Alta Vista and uh, <laughs> pass the? We'll check your MySpace page on and GeoCities and uh, log into Hotmail and see your one one message and no spam because this was before <laughs> spam. <laughs> those were the days. I did none of those things because it was. Uh, because it was internet cafe and not a time machine. Yeah, basically, I when I uh, when I first started using email, mm-hmm. um, it was actually using Pine. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, the accompanying text editor Pico. Yeah. And then for internet for the web, 
the World Wide Web, mm-hmm. it was uh, links. Oh, really? Those were the, that was my first experience Your with first the internet. Browser. You know, I know this is a bit ridiculous, but to this day, I still check my websites in links <laughs> when I'm designing them. Like I don't, I don't spend an awful lot of time on it. But when I'm doing the initial, if I'm making a new website, like I think I did this for the Station Thirteen website, and I did it for my own website, I just open it in links just to make sure that you don't have to go through too much crap before you get to the content. Mm. Because it's a good, it's a good indicator, I think, of of sanity in web design. So, so, so links is actually still being maintained. Yeah. Yeah, still a, really? there are two console-based web browsers that are popular, Lynx and W3C. Right. W3C is by the the World Wide Web Consortium. But Lynx is Lynx is still going. Um mm. yeah, I don't I mean obviously I don't really use it now, but mm. I use W3C because I use Mutt for my email. Right. And if I get an HTML email, Mutt is a console-based text-only email program. So if you want to view HTML mail, you need to filter it through another program that can turn the HTML into something that's nicer to read in the terminal. Right. Uh, So I send any HTML mails that I get. I mean, I don't manually do this. Mutt does it for me automatically. It filters any HTML emails through W3C, right. which turns it into just plain text that I can read. So you, you use Mutt to check your email now? Yeah. I mean, I use but I use the Fastmail interface in the browser, but I also use Mutt when I'm using a program to do it. Wow. Yeah, because Mutt is still, I think, if you want to work through a large amount of email... Mutt, I still think, is the the most powerful client to do that. It's got really good threading display. So if you get long, if you subscribe to a lot of mailing lists, for example, and you get long threads of replies to each other, Mutt will display that in an easy way to to read. And it has lots of good keyboard shortcuts for like marking entire threads as read or for filtering through your whole inbox to say say you want to look for all emails from a certain email suffix with a certain regular expression in the body for example that's quite easy to do in mutt and i'm sure that modern fancy email clients can do all that as well but you know you have to click a lot of times (laughs) (laughs) no this is um i remember this is actually uh one of the conversations that I have the fondest memories of having with you originally when we were on our way to the Station 13, mm. which uh, astute listeners will understand what that's all about. But the um, I have this strange nostalgic fantasy with doing kind of work-based things that I do a lot every day for my job mm. in a purely text interface like you do. And the, the three or Mutt will obviously would would fill in the mail side of things, mm-hmm. but the the other two pieces of software that um, I'd often sort of talk to you about how I would love to use if it was a little easier and a little bit more I don't know practical and pragmatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those two are Midnight Commander mm. for uh, file um, is that that's a dual paned file manager, dual paned file manager, yeah, and um, the other one is Task Warrior. 
mm. which is a, a text-based kind of um, GTD-style uh, get-things-done task management system. Mm. And uh, Midnight Warrior, really purely only because of the name. Midnight Commander. <laughs> Sorry, Midnight Commander, yeah. <laughs> just, just a, I said Midnight mixing Warrior. Mixing the two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Midnight Commander, just the name, you know, it's got that real... Uh, the name Midnight Commander just it's, reminds me of... It's a very sort of 90s terminal nine, matrix. Yeah, demo scene. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's sort of a sort of a demo scene, you know, late, late night BBS to Scandinavia kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, growing up in Australia, you know, the, the, um, uh, in the 90s, especially with the, the Commodore culture, mm. you know, the whole... Uh, bulletin board thing you know with your dial-up modem Mm. that's all very because of the time zone difference with all the the guys in scandinavia doing all of that stuff with the demo scene it tended to be late night sessions hence midnight commander (laughs) but anyway um task warrior actually it looks really really great as far as a task management system goes Mm. but again these are all entirely text Mm. and so you know for somebody like me is there any real benefit to having no visual aspect as far as pointing and clicking and having it all text. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, the idea is fanciful and it is uh, kind of a, a nice idea to, hey, look, I'm, look, look, ma, no mouse. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, is it practical for somebody like me? No, not really. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I've been through phases of trying to do everything in the terminal and, and otherwise. I feel like now, like there has to be an actual benefit to to that program or to doing it in the terminal for some reason. Mm. So, like Midnight Commander, I've never got into. I've never been as much into dual pane file managers as you. So mm. there's there's that. Uh, but of course, I am using Forklift. Yeah, you use Forklift, which fine. is a, a GUI based dual pane file manager. I use. I use both. I use the Finder for a lot of things, but I use Forklift, especially for when I'm shuffling between servers and things like that. Right. And uh, I use, I've recently been trying to get back into task management a little bit Mm. uh, using OmniFocus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have used Task Warrior before very briefly, uh, but like I feel in both of those cases, Forklift just feels easier to use and more practical to me than Midnight Commander. Right. And uh, and the same with OmniFocus versus Task Warrior. Whereas mm. with with Mutt, I think if there was a GUI version of Mutt, I would much rather use it. Like the reason that I like Mutt is not because it's in the terminal. It's because okay. it's really fast. I mean, it is because it's really fast to navigate with the keyboard, which is a thing that is very common in the terminal because... You know, that's where the focus tends to be. Right. But I think Mutt and email, you know, terminal-based email clients in general are actually kind of annoying because, like, I have to do this whole dance filtering incoming emails through W3C if they're HTML in order to view them. Right. And some email clients will do really annoying things. Like, there's a... I don't know how au fait you are with the MIME standard for, for attachments in emails, but... There's a way that you are supposed to, if you, if your email client sends an HTML email out, there there is a mechanism by which it can send an HTML version and a plain text version. Mm. 
And then people whose email clients can't read HTML email will get the plain text version. Right. Uh, and the way you're supposed to do that is with a, a an attachment, which is called a multi-part alternative attachment. Right. So the thing that I do with filtering through W3, it's W3M, not W3C. Uh, the, I do that only with emails that are just sent as HTML. But if they're sent as multi-part alternative, then I'll just read the plain text one and I won't need to bother converting the HTML, which is great. Right. But some email clients, for whatever reason, decide that they're going to send a multi-part alternative email with the proper mail in the HTML section and then just blank mm. in the text section. Nice. Which means it just displays as blank for me. <laughs> you know, So you know that sort of thing is really annoying. And if you've got embedded images, like I can view the images in Matt but they won't appear in line because it's in the terminal. So right. I'll get the email like converted from HTML or whatever. The images will all be listed as attachments and I can then go and view each each attachment when I want to see each image. Mm. Uh, but that's kind of annoying, right? So I would much rather have a version of Mutt that works the same way, has the same keyboard shortcuts, has the same extremely fast mail filtering uh, tools that Mutt does the same threaded view and the same latency you know the fact that when you press a button it happens instantly without any delay hmm. if i could have all that but in a gui version which you know would display images in line and would have other nice affordances that guis tend to give you like being able to resize the frames by clicking and dragging which you can't do in in mat uh, or by being able to click on a message to view it, for example. I would much prefer that. I would actually prefer a GUI version. It's just, it doesn't exist. Mm. And then the other main terminal program that I use is Vim, mm. for which there is a sort of a GUI version called MacVim, but it doesn't get you much on top of what the terminal version gives you. It's just slightly nicer font rendering, really. And the thing I like about Vim is that you can press colon term and uh, colon shell rather and drop into the terminal and just be in the terminal. So I, I move in and out of the terminal a lot with Vim. So I think Vim has a good reason for being in the terminal and that's why I use it in the terminal. But for everything else, I wouldn't go out of my way to use a terminal version of the app. In fact, I kind of prefer not to. So I'm um, just looking at some some uh, screenshots of what Mutt looks like. Mm. This looks cool. <laughs> That's me, again, sort of that fanciful uh, idea of doing something in a full text interface, me talking again. It does, I, I mean, I will grant you, it does look cool. If So help me out here. If Because um, actually, for my work email, I use uh, Apple Mail, which is great. Mm. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the thing, though, is that often I uh, find myself needing to do, because I do my the actual work on a PC, but I do all of the emailing and stuff on my Mac. So I have both computers running when I'm working. Mm. And naturally, of course, that often produces situations where I've got to, you know, do some funny stuff in order to get something from the PC to the Mac in order to, to send it or, or, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I've often thought it'd be nice to have an email client on the PC. Mm -hmm. And seeing as I store all of my uh, email on the um, respective servers as opposed to locally, 
mm-hmm. actually having a, an email client on the PC, which just access the services and I have all of my email record archives there, mm-hmm. uh, is a relatively easy kind of transition to make and an easy thing to set up mm-hmm. and have them sort of sync in between the two of them. Mm-hmm. But I have yet to find a uh, yet to find an email client on the PC that I'm happy with, mm-hmm. and um, I really really don't like the Gmail interface, mm-hmm. uh, the the browser interface for Gmail, mm-hmm. um, for a lot of different reasons, which aren't really worth mentioning here. But haven't really found a good email client on the PC. Mm-hmm. So you know what is good? I guess something that is. Uh, has you know just the right amount of functionality, but not so much. Mm-hmm. But also something which is pleasant to look at, something which is uh, obviously reliable, and something which allows for easy sorting of email. I'm one of these funny, weird people who prefers to keep the inbox empty all the time. Right, right, right. <laughs> the inbox zero, uh, and right. so. Yeah, well, kind of inbox zero. I think I feel that refers to to the idea of being extremely busy and then spending a day or so getting your e- your inbox all sorted out and all down to zero. Oh no, I don't think so. No, no, no. Really? No. Inbox the inbox zero. The concept of inbox zero is that you keep your inbox at zero, and so very frequently, like whenever you check your mail, you will look at every email that is in your inbox. And immediately either put it in a folder to say, I need to sort this out later, or to put it in a folder to say, this needs a reply, or to put it in a folder for, like categorized by the kind of word that it represents, so that you you always keep your inbox at zero emails. Mm. Okay, well, that's me. Okay. <laughs> so I guess I do fit into the inbox zero crowd then, because that, that's exactly me. The thing about spending a day getting it down to zero is how everyone starts that process oh, okay. right because they, they they need to go from like multiple thousands to zero right so maybe that's where you're getting that impression but the the reason they do that is to try and then maintain that right i see yeah i mean i've i've always been this way it's just the way that you know i guess way back in the 80s or the 90s or whenever it was uh, my brother taught me how to do email mm. and so Functions for being able to sort email out into folders, mm-hmm. uh, either automatically or manually. Mm-hmm. That's also something that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. So tell me then, if one was interested in getting MUT working, is this something that is quite complex to set up or is it actually fairly simple? Uh, no, it's very complex. Oh, okay. It's, the thing with MUT is it's one of those tools, a little bit like Emacs to some extent, Vim, uh, that the default behavior out of the box, I don't think is that good. Mm. So I think quite an important part of using it is spending a little while setting it up and bending it to your will. I see. Uh, until you have it set up the, the way that you like it. And like all those other tools, because it's so flexible and powerful, it's very likely you can set it up in some way that will match your workflow. Right. But I have found it to be one probably one of the most fiddly tools to set up wow well, of, of all of the ones that i've gee if got. even you find it fiddly then uh yeah, yeah so it's, I, I definitely cannot recommend it for its simplicity <laughs> okay and i imagine that customizing it basically is what editing a dot mut rc file yeah yeah exactly uh, okay yeah all right well maybe that maybe that's not the choice for me i mean there, there are lots of guides on the internet but i don't know also 
I for a while I used Mutt with lots of folders. I have flirted with Inbox Zero on and off many times. Usually, eventually, given up on the idea. I like no unread mails, mm. so I I like to get the little red badge on my iPhone to be gone. Mm. Uh, unlike my wife, for example, who has it at such a high number that they can't display. <laughs> it's just like 9,999 or whatever. Uh, but so I do, I do do that, but I don't move things out of my inbox. But for a while I did. And the other thing that I have done many times in the past is to set up server-side rules mm. so that as soon as an email comes in, before I even see it on the server it has been filtered into one folder or another, depending on whether it came from this mailing list or it was from this set of people or whatever. Right. And I did that using Mutt for a while. And that works and is a workflow that works. And it is quite quick to move emails from one folder to another in Mutt if you're going to be doing that manually. Hmm. But Mutt's, I think the feature that Mutt has that is probably the most powerful feature that it has maybe is its email searching and highlighting functionality. Hmm. Uh, Both of these work with an extended uh, regular expressions syntax. Are you familiar with regular expressions? Is that like, hello, how are you? No, (laughs) (laughs) it's a special syntax for describing search terms. Right. So if you think about the, like this isn't a regular expression, but you know, at like the command line on either Windows or on Mac or whatever, you might say like delete star.jpg or something. Right. That star is a special wildcard, right? Hmm. Regular expressions is like a super powerful version of that idea. So you can construct this search string where you can say like, for example, delete all the files which begin with this prefix and then have a string of numbers uh, and then .jpg or whatever. You can, you can construct these very particular searches. Mutt extends that by allowing you to specify where in the email it should search, whether it should be in the from field or the to field or the subject or in the body of the email and other things like that. Hmm. And so you can construct these very powerful uh, search terms. And so if you've got... If rather than having like everything nicely ordered into folders, you have all your emails in one big folder, you can make shortcuts that will create sort of views on that folder. A bit like the sort of smart folders concept in MacMail, which is a, it's not a real folder, but it it feels like a folder and it's being constructed based on properties of, of the emails. Right. So that's that's one useful feature. But the other thing that you can do Uh, which is a very sort of terminally thing to do, is that you can set up your color scheme in Mutt Mm. to color emails in the big list of emails, uh, which you've probably seen in the screenshots you've looked up. You can actually set it to color those emails differently Mm. based on the same regular expressions. Oh, I see. So when we were working at, uh, when we were working with Nintendo, for example, at Vitae, I had it set up to color anything from Nintendo in red. So I would see it would jump out and I would know that I was getting an email from Nintendo and and it was important. I needed to sort of deal with it. So, and you can also color in emails that you've replied to differently from emails you haven't. And 
emails that are directed at you rather than ones you're just getting from a mailing list and stuff like that. Right. So all those things are sort of fun to customize, but they are a lot of effort. I see. Yeah. And on the other hand, switching between folders, like being in the inbox and then going to another folder is not slow. It's not like too bad, Mm. but it's, I think it's not as good as a GUI interface. I think that, you know, just having a list of folders on the left and clicking the folder you want to go to is actually a better interface than what Mutt offers, which it has two interfaces to switch folder. One of them is the same list of folders on the left, but you have to sort of construct shortcut keys to move up and down that list and then press a button to select that folder. Mm. And those shortcut keys don't exist out of the box. So you've got to decide what you're going to use and set it up yourself. And so, you know, all of that just feels a lot more, there's a lot more friction there. It doesn't feel like the way that Mutt was really sort of intended to be used, Mm. maybe. Uh, So I'm not sure I would recommend it for people who use lots of folders. And I'm not sure I would recommend it for people who want an easy life. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's just a lot of work sort of maintaining it and getting your config set up. Well, if any any listeners have any uh, recommendations for... uh windows email clients that aren't outlook have you tried thunderbird the mozilla one i have now here's here's the issue that i that i've always had with uh, thunder so I, d- I did use thunderbird uh when i was in japan for uh, i don't know maybe about five or six years no actually longer than that but anyway the pcs that i used to use uh when i was working in japan i used to put thunderbird on mm. so there's a there's a funny thing that I find happens with uh, Thunderbird. And I'm sure there's a way to work it out, but I every time I go to set up Thunderbird on a new machine, mm. I have the same problem. And then I'm always scra- left scratching my head f- trying to remember how I fixed it last time. And that is with one of the flags that you can put into the header of an email, which is called content format flowed. Oh, yeah. I think that's what... Yeah. So this one always confuses me because I like to see... My email, I like to see paragraphs of English wrapped to the window size, mm-hmm. not to an artificial hard uh, margin of 80 characters. Okay. Wow. We're getting into some tabs versus spaces level of controversial <laughs> territory here. Right. So do go on. Yeah. So I prefer to see it that way because often. When I was using Thunderbird, what would happen is that when you reply, mm-hmm. then it goes over that 80, mm-hmm. 80 character width because it's pushing everything forward by two spaces to put the mm-hmm. quote marks in on the side, on the left-hand side. And then it'll all kind of get crazy. So one thing I've found is that for whatever reason, Apple Mail mm-hmm. does a really, really good job at this. And you don't need to set up anything. Basically, when I'm sending emails out, Actually, I don't know what it's wrapping them to, but I send plain text emails, mm-hmm. and I believe I actually I don't know. It doesn't wrap them. Apple Apple Mail just leaves has, them unwrapped. Okay. However, when I get emails from other people that are wrapped, unless it's rich text, if it's a plain mm-hmm. text email, then it will come in and assuming that the, this content format float is set, mm-hmm. everything just looks fine how I'd want it to look. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's, it's great, and I don't need to touch anything. So with Thunderbird, I think default, it uh, hard wraps it to 80 characters, mm-hmm. and then my message gets all kind of crazy when people reply to it. Mm-hmm. And there are some settings for 
word wrap and for uh, there are various I mean in typical Mozilla fa- fashion there's a lot about it you can customize mm-hmm. but I never managed to get it working the way that I wanted it to and it was always just a little bit frustrating and that's the reason why I don't use Thunderbird these days because it's just I can't remember how I figured it out once mm-hmm. to get the, the the right combination of settings to make sure that it works kind of like the way that Apple Mail does mm-hmm. and displays emails the way that Apple Mail does Mm. without me having to think at all about word wrap and it just all it always just wraps to the window unless it's an html email or something right right uh yeah that's interesting i don't know the details of how those all work but i do i have been annoyed by it (laughs) Mm. enough to have opinions (laughs) (laughs) so the, the the format flowed thing the way that that works is so the the idea is that the the idea of wrapping text, hard wrapping text at uh, eighty characters or seventy two characters, uh, is that when you're viewing it on a terminal, for example, uh, it won't go off the edge. Uh, when you're viewing it in a really wide window, it will be wrapped at a position that is comfortable to read, mm. uh, because it's it's harder to read very very long lines of text mm. and then scan all the way back to the beginning of the next line 80 characters is about the the right width that's part of the reason that i really don't like the gmail interface because that has you reading all the way and if you go to compose an email on a wide screen then you're writing all the way across right the, anyway anyway right. keep going so but it does feel a little bit old-fashioned and then if you do have automatic word wrapping in your client and you get a hard wrapped email uh, then it will end up being double wrapped, and you see the thing that you often see where right. the you know you get sort of the first the last two words on the next line, and then the next sentence, and then the last two words of that sentence on the next line, and then the next mm. you know the next line for the next sentence. And so they devised a sort of way to deal with that, which is the format flowed idea. And the way that that works is that the plain text version of the email is hard-wrapped at 80 characters. But if the next line is supposed to be part of the same paragraph, it leaves a space, a single space at the end of the line to tell the email client, this is actually, the next line is going to be part of the same paragraph. So if you want to undo the hard-wrapping, you can remove the new line and treat it as one long line. Mm. And so the idea there is that you can satisfy both kinds of people. You can satisfy the people who like the hard wrapping because they will just ignore the format flowed option and just display it with the hard wrapping that you put in. Mm. Uh, You can satisfy the people who like the soft wrapping, which is where it it just all, you know, wraps to the size of the window because they have enough, their client has enough data to undo the hard wrapping and turn it into a single line again. Uh, and you can avoid the problem that you sometimes get with soft wrapping, which is the reason that hard wrapping is popular amongst programmer types is that if you have a very long line of code, it can be significant that it isn't on the same line. Right. Code becomes much harder to read if you are wrapping it at arbitrary locations, right? Right, right. So, uh, but because you don't put this extra space at the end of the the lines of code that you have in your email, the the client won't wrap those ones. Mm. 
so ev- so everyone's kind of happy. The only problem is it relies on the client sending the email to do the right thing. Right. And from your description, it sounds like Thunderbird doesn't possibly. It can be set to do it, but it's. I but just you always have to remember to do it. To do it. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. I would expect Thunderbird to be the sort of email client that would get this right. Mm. Um, but uh, maybe it does need a setting. Yeah, and then all of this, uh, all of this breaks down when we when we introduce Japanese into the mixture. Mm. This is an interesting, interesting piece of trivia for those people who are interested. Japanese people, when they write emails, they I think you know, will know where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. In English, you would you basically have chunks of text that are based on a single topic called a paragraph, mm. and you just keep writing. And then in between the paragraph, you may have one blank line. Mm. Uh, and then you just keep writing the next paragraph. And then if you're writing in an email, it will just figure out, depending on what we've just been talking about, you know, if you're going to wrap it to 80 characters or, or or have it as one long line or whatever, it, it figures it out based on how you're writing. Mm. Japanese, on the other hand, it's, very, it's quite fascinating. And this is something that I learned very quickly when I started working in a Japanese office. It's very important to manually put in your... What character turns? What do we call them these days? Line uh, feed, new lines, line feeds. Yeah, take right. Um, it's very important to manually put in your your character turns down to the next line, so you don't just keep writing mm. and trust that the email client will find a good place to cut the line off. Mm. It can do that very easily in English because we have spaces mm. and our language is structured into words. In Japanese, obviously, there are words too. But the written Japanese language doesn't have spaces. Right. So when you look at Japanese typography, there are very specific, actually not that complicated, rules associated with where you need to put line breaks. Mm -hmm. And Japanese email clients or email clients that are used in Japan don't do that. So you, or at least people have got into the custom of doing it themselves. Mm -hmm. So that means now it's up to the writer to decide where they want to actually cut the line off and have it start on the next, you know, continue the sentence on the next line. Right. I've always got the feeling of that as less of a technical necessity because, as you say, the rules are not actually that complicated. And so the email clients, whether they do or they don't, they could easily be made to respect those rules. But I always got the impression it's more of a stylistic thing. It's the way that Japanese writers like to have a single line represent a single thought right Uh, and so choosing where to put the line feed feels like very much a part of composing the email yeah i think it gives you that ability to do that Mm. as well Mm. as a secondary benefit i think the primary thing is that from a japanese point of view typographically if you want something to look nice then you don't want this text that's running all the way across and then sort of jumping down to the next line at a really strange kind of arrhythmic point in the sentence. Right. But it's not as if they attempt to lay it out like a paragraph either. No, that's right. It doesn't really look like a paragraph in like Japanese novels, for example, Mm. and long-form Japanese text is composed of paragraphs. It's not composed of sort of single sentence like one line per sentence sometimes even not even a whole line per sentence as Mm. japanese emails tend to be right and you know it feels like if it was mainly for the typographical reasons that they were doing this then they would try to simulate 
the way that books, for example, lay out paragraphs. But that's not what they're doing. It feels to me like a very different way of structuring their prose. Mm. Yeah, it's. I don't really know why it's become like that mm -hmm. with Japanese emails. And I guess really it's a sort of an organic thing that's kind of developed mm. over the, the decades that people have been emailing in Japan. And then, you know, as is usually the case in Japan, they'll, they'll very quickly form a framework of sort of rules and protocols surrounding the, quote, correct way to format your emails. Mm. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody you know, who's been heavily emailing since the 80s and the 90s about the development, whether initially people started just writing these long lines of text mm. and then saw that, oh, it's cutting off when I send it and have a look at what I've sent. It's put all of these line breaks in really, really weird kind of awkward places in the, in the, the tempo of the sentence, the rhythm mm -hmm. of the sentence. So mm -hmm. I should do it myself. But then that decision of actually how many like how long to make each sentence, mm. sorry, each line, it, that also seems to depend on the person. Some people make their emails very, very narrow. Mm -hmm. Some people make them, you know, wider. Mm. So, yeah, all of all of these traditions aren't really very well uh, accommodated for with uh, the way that the email system works, especially the way that most email clients work with designed to handle English with spaces in between right. words and stuff like that. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it is quite interesting. It's interesting as well because it's one of those things that you you sort of pick up, like the other aspects of the language, right? You sort of expect that somebody living in a country learning a foreign language will pick up common expressions and modes of speech from that language. Mm. But it's interesting how these sort of little cultural quirks, like I never set out to learn how you know where i should break up a line in a japanese email mm. but i sent and received enough emails over my time there that you know i naturally developed my own rhythm mm. anyway yeah i i don't know the i think that the the cultural you know japanese people are famous for their desire to do things correctly mm. and to do things you know the the proper way and, you know, where, how do you define what is the proper way? It's funny when you find um, the, uh, there are a lot of magazines, uh, like business magazines that will talk about business etiquette. Um, and of course, etiquette is, business etiquette is something that you can easily find on the, on the internet as well. Um, if you search for in, in Japanese, there'll be lots of different sort of uh, sites and guides and stuff like that for the correct way to do things. Mm. I think it's just a part of, of Japanese culture. And then, of course, in the sort of business, uh, the business situation, you know, they'll, uh, unless you're doing things extremely wrong, if, if the way that you're doing something is sort of passable, mm. uh, it, then it really just depends on the people that you're working with, whether or not you're going to have a awkward conversation with somebody one day <laughs> to say, you know, Daniel-san, you, really, uh, you should really truncate your lines like this. Oh, okay. Thank you. I didn't realize. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So um, the other thing that uh, has been happening for me recently is um, uh, I've been enjoying some new music. Uh -huh. I've actually been uh, on the hunt for a uh, streaming service to subscribe to. And um, uh, I've decided to go with Spotify because it's a Swedish company and they're actually based here in Stockholm. And I've actually had the privilege of going to their office. I was, uh, All right. yeah, I was, um, invited to go there by, uh, a friend of mine who works there mm. 
and uh, yeah, you know, it's a nice bunch of people and all that. But anyway, so the the recommendation engine in Spotify is doing excellent things for me and has really kind of creepily got a good handle on the kind of music that I like. So the way that it works is that every Monday you will get a playlist that's put together for you Mm -hmm. based on just sort of new music that you would not likely have heard before uh, that fits with your tastes. Mm. And um, every Monday, basically in there, there'll be something that's really kind of, wow, like how come I'd never discovered this before? (laughs) So... I would like to share with you three, oh. uh, which which I can highly recommend. Okay. Um, number one, you may have heard of, uh, because I know that you have um, a fondness for metal, mm-hmm. um, but it's a guy called Devin Townsend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's good. I follow him on Twitter as well, actually. He's, he's an interesting chap. Yeah. Like, uh, so he's a Canadian uh, guitarist and singer and mm-hmm. writer. And uh Yeah. Pretty pretty amazing. Basically, uh, wow. I mean, <laughs> he's he's an amazing entertainer, but he has an incredible mm. um, incredible ability to sort of switch gears with his vocal style. So he can go yes. from screaming to like uh, falsetto to very mm. very nice, clean, more traditional mm. singing as well, all mm. in the same song. Mm. Um, but the the common thread that runs through his music, which I really enjoy, is just this sheer kind of ridiculous operatic theatrical mm. epicness mm. <laughs> you know <laughs> just this massive massive sound and like this huge wall of of vocals and and mm. guitars and choirs mm. and strings and it's just like completely over the top theatrical right. massive epic metal and and he knows it as well like like so many sort of metal artists he's he's willing to sort of have fun with with what he's doing, and he doesn't sort of take it too seriously. Yeah. Have that, you listened to the uh, his Ziltoid stuff? Did that come up in your exploration? Yeah, I've so I've I've um, <laughs> I've been uh, kind of binge listening to uh, uh, a lot of his stuff, and uh, mm. I love that aspect of how he he it's very tongue in cheek. Mm. And when you watch live performances that he does on YouTube as well, mm. um, it, it's just so entertaining because it's such a weird kind of contrast on the one hand he comes across as being this incredibly normal guy yeah 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 he is <laughs> and he'll 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 sort of talk to the audience in the middle of his songs or mm. he'll you know his his uh, sort of um on stage banter in between songs is, uh, is is just very down to earth completely unpretentious often very um very funny mm. and yet he's playing this music which has this massive kind of fantastical mystique about it because it's so kind of <laughs> epic it would be all too easy for him to be up there in a in a a costume with this sort of with this with this um you know pretentious uh posturing kind of you know uh basically trying to look the part mm. and act the part mm. but no he's just this regular bloke <laughs> who's playing this kind of incredibly epic music and I think that that contrast is really really uh um unusual. Mm. Um do you know the other uh there's another band called Ghost mm-hmm. uh which is a Swedish kind of um uh what would you call them I, I, it's a kind of sort of pop death metal <laughs> I mm. suppose they are or, or kind of on the other end of this scale where they're also playing music that sounds very sort of epic and that has a whole uh 
strong current of imagery and kind of fantasy about it. Mm. Um, however, in their case, they they play it up and they look the part, and they all have right. you know the the band all wear masks, and the the lead singer has like this bishop's hat with an upside down cross on it and this <laughs> funky makeup and all this kind of stuff right so that they really play up that side whereas devon is just kind of like you know hey guys yeah so i've got a new song for you <laughs> and and it ends up being this sort of brain blasting adventure in in, in <laughs> you know kind of musical imagery yeah so yeah devon townsend i'm i'm glad that you uh you know who that is actually how, how is it that you know of him um he was the uh vocalist i think and uh, and also guitarist for Strapping Young Lad, right? Which was a very well-known sort of hardcore band, I guess. Mm. Uh, so I knew him from that. And then the next time I saw it, the first time I heard his solo stuff was Ziltoid, right? Which is like so sort of out there and funny, but not a comedy thing. It's mm. you know, it's it's not like satire, right? Um, you know, like what's Jack Black's band called again? Tenacious D, right? Like Tenacious D feels like it's uh, setting out to parody metal, right? Right. That's not what Ziltoid's doing at all. Ziltoid is metal. It's not a parody of metal. It's metal, metal. You know, mm. but it happens to be funny and is just got this really, you know, interesting imaginative approach. So, and quite different in that respect from i mean i wasn't massively into strapping young lad but mm. stuff i'd heard from them before so that was kind of when when i got into him i mean i'm not like a, a super fan or anything but right. uh, i am familiar with his work mm. and yeah and he's and also he's you know as you say he's a really down-to-earth person he's quite active on twitter right and i think he quit drinking or quit drugs or something and so he's you know he's quite straight laced these days but he's talked about mm. that quite a bit on on twitter yeah so yeah he's an interesting person to follow yeah so um i can def- definitely recommend three th- on youtube if you want to have a an idea of what he's about mm. there are three videos that are very good mm. one is him at the royal albert hall with his song called deadhead mm that's a very good example of of his sense of humor and his singing and the style of music. Um, the other one is called Stormbender, if there's an official kind of music video clip for that, which is, uh, you don't get so much of an idea of his personality in that, but it's a, it's a great song and mm. uh, extremely epic. Mm. And the third one is Kingdom, which is... Uh, exists on YouTube in various various forms but I think the one that he plays on EMG TV which is uh, EMG mm-hmm. uh, pick uh, pickup manufacturers mm-hmm. where it's just him singing with his guitar singing to a backing track um that will give you an extremely uh, extremely accurate rendish, uh, uh, overview of his uh, personality mm-hmm. so yeah have a look at those three I'll stick all those in the show notes yeah yeah so the um the other two bands the first Sorry, the second one uh, is a Danish band called Black Book Lodge, hmm. and oh man, I've fallen pretty pretty hard, pretty badly for for this band. So this one came up in um, my recommendations this week, mm-hmm. and wow! So the album to listen to is the latest album called Steeple and Spire, mm. and um, it is a five piece, was a four or five piece Danish band. Mm. 
And I think it, you could probably put it as Stone Temple Pilots mm-hmm. plus Muse mm-hmm. plus uh, maybe a bit of Radiohead. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of progressive progressive rock, very hard progressive rock music. Mm. Musically, though, like from a musical point of view, it's really fascinating, and they. They dance around chord sequences in a very, very um, sophisticated and quite intellectual way. Mm. But the performance is great. The singing is fantastic. And there's a real kind of quintessentially Scandinavian darkness about their music. Mm. It's, not me- it's not metal. It's definitely progressive rock music. Mm-hmm. But there is this real kind of thick black darkness about the about the the imagery that they they create with their tracks, which is really really uh, engaging. So the the previous albums to um, I think they've got two albums before this one. Mm-hmm. The previous ones, are, yeah, they're, they're good, but you can definitely feel that they are searching for something. And I think that uh, when they get to Steeple and Spire, the whole album is just exceptionally good. Mm. So. That's the second recommendation, something to check out. Mm, cool. The third one is really cool. The third one, uh, again, is this kind of thing that really only something like this kind of uh, music streaming service that has access, algorithmic access to all of this music, all kind of uh, tagged and uh, indexed such that, you know, there's, there's no way that I would have discovered this band in any other way. Mm-hmm. But it's actually, a, it's actually a Japanese group, all right. which is fantastically cool. Uh, and they're called Mouse on the Keys. Mm-hmm. And it is an instrumental group, which is a live drummer and two keyboard players. Interesting. And they uh, have found well-deserved and excellent success outside of Japan, which is great. Mm-hmm. I think all of us who've lived inside Japan uh, always feel happy when you know some of the excellent musicians in Japan who tend to fly under the radar from the Western side of things get some recognition outside of Japan because there's so much... Uh, mm-hmm. Beyond the, the the big engine of Japanese pop music, there's there's so much that sort of uh, more progressive Japanese modern music has to offer. Mm. Anyway, uh, Mouse on the Keys is is kind of like a jazz fusion meets sort of live electronica kind of sound. Mm. Uh, being that it's a live drummer, often the things tend to have a sort of a drum and bass jungle kind of feel to them mm-hmm. uh, because you're combining an acoustic drum kit together with, you know, basically two keyboard players who are operating different kinds of synthesizers and things like that. That's um, interesting, yeah. The, the song to recommend from them, uh, which got me really hooked on them, is called Earache. Mm. Good start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. I mean, I was really, really happy... I heard it and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. This is It feels kind of like electronica, but it's all obviously live. Mm-hmm. The synthesizer work, the sound design is excellent. Mm-hmm. The drum playing is excellent. And then I go and look it up. Oh, they're Japanese. Well, that's that's great. And then right. <laughs> reading up about them, finding that they've uh, yeah found quite a lot of um, recognition in America and in Europe. It's uh, really good to see. So there you go. Those are my three recommendations. Oh, cool. So they're both synth keyboards, are they? Not like... yeah piano like no so they synthy, they do have that synthy sounds. they do have they do have that too but it's it's mm-hmm. it's clearly key to their sound that they want the the synth parts to be you know obviously synthetic and more of a uh, sort of acoustic electronica feel hmm 
was going to say the acoustic being the drums and the the electronic being more the keyboard side. Yeah, exactly. So if you if you took away the drums and you replace it with you know sampled synthetic drums, then it would basically be like a kind of a progressive electronica band. Right. I but see. The fact that the fact that they have the live drummer there and the fact that the two guys playing the keyboards are doing it all live and it's not mm. sequenced mm. just gives it uh, a, a really interesting character. Mm. So is everything done with those that set of live instruments? Do they have any sort of sequencing? stuff going on in the background is it like have they set set like for the i mean i imagine for the live show it is but for their studio work for example mm. do they have some sort of sequence soundscape stuff going on in the background as well yeah clearly they do um i think the mm. the the objective for them is is not so much to say hey look at what we can do with our format right but the objective really clearly is uh you know um the imagery and the the mood that they're trying to conjure so they do have um the the studio work is sculpted in that way so obviously there will be sort of tracks that they're not actually playing with the the four hands on the two keyboards you know right right yeah yeah so there you go those are my uh, three music recommendations for this episode oh cool are you listening to anything unusual or uh out of your uh usual kind of wheelhouse of music these days um no really. i've been listening to a lot of playlists on apple music recently so i'm also doing the streaming thing mostly classical Nice. There's a few playlists uh, that that are offered there for like these are these are not algorithmic. These are um, Apple Music has human curated playlists as well as sort of attempting to match music to you algorithmically. Right. And the other thing it tries to do is is match playlists to you. So they've got a human curated playlist, and then they say to you, "You might like this playlist," mm. and so. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting balance. And they've got a couple of uh, playlists that have come up for me recently. Classical Music to Concentrate was one of them. Hmm. Uh, but another one was called something like Electro Classical or something like that. And it was people okay. who had taken classical music, but they'd sort of put a very sort of modern electronic spin on it. So so that was quite interesting. Did you ever hear um, Switched on Bark? No, I don't no, think so. No. Okay, yeah, that was like one of the very, very early, I think it was in the 1970s, the very early uh, experiments into classical music played on analog synthesizers. Oh, right. Mm. That's a little different from what you're talking about, though. A little bit different, because this is trying to sort of merge them a little bit more, rather than take the one thing and sort of reproduce it on the other. But um, right. did you ever hear, uh, this is totally different, this is, oh, I can't remember the name of the guy, I'll I'll look him up. Uh, there's there's a Japanese guy who plays shamisen, but essentially as a pop instrument. Yeah, I remember. Like all the all the music is very pop and it's very very fast. Right. Uh, very talented shamisen player, but he's not really attempting to to take traditional music uh, and update it or anything. He's, he's sort of very very much playing it. I mean, it's it's still got this traditional sort of feel to it and uses a lot of the yeah. traditional scales and ideas, but. But it was it was much more popular. Yeah, I uh, I I remember. I don't know his name, but I I remember seeing that. You know, I'm personally this also crosses over into my taste in games too. Incidentally, mm. but um, I think we've talked about this before as well. Not on the show though, I don't think. But my taste in music, I, I'm not a big fan of the. No, let's put it another way. I'm more of a fan of purism. Is that a word? Purism. 
It is a weird thing. Okay. More of a fan of purism than I am of kind of cross-pollinated mashup. Mm. So um, I, I do understand the novelty and the appeal of, like, here's a good example, uh, baby metal mm-hmm. uh, is a fine example. Um, so basic, <laughs> basically, uh, also the shamisen pop player is an, is an example as well. Is, right, right. You know, basically where you take one genre and another genre and you slam them together and you create something new and different out of that. Mm-hmm. I'm personally, yeah, I, I much prefer specific genres that are done extremely well mm-hmm. to finding out what's in between the gap between two different genres. Mm. So the the exception there is something like, for example, Mouse on the Keys, as I mentioned, where you've got an acoustic drummer right. together with two synth players. Like in this sense, because there is such a thing as drum and bass music mm-hmm. uh, and sort of breakbeat music and big beat music and all that sort of um, mm. loop, like drum break loop based electronic music, to me, it, rather than being oh, wow, listen to that. It's a jazz fusion drummer with some synthesizers. That's cool. That's like jazz fusion plus techno. Right. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem like that. It seems more like, oh, this is like a live version of drum and bass. Cool. Mm. Uh, so I don't really count that as being sort of a mashup of two genres. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I tend to find that things that, that, that play off that weird juxtaposition of two things that don't normally go together, mm-hmm. I don't tend to find that so appealing myself what about you yeah i suppose i think i can see what you mean i think i think often it can end up with sort of quite kitschy results right right it's very you know you're taking because you often get the most surface level cliche things of both genres and then mix those together Mm. but i think you can find some interesting ideas there and i think especially when it's somebody taking a traditional sort of form of music where they are and then sort of imbuing it with this other style, I think it can work. Mm. An extremely successful example of this is uh, Tango Nuevo, right? The the current uh, sort of crop of tango uh, musicians mm. like Gotan Project, for example, mm. who are making tango music that you can dance to mm. but uh it's not traditional tango music it's not played with the traditional uh orchestra of you know a piano and some violins and bandoneon it's got you know it's got drums tango traditionally didn't have any percussion other than piano and so this this has got dance beats and it feels like a sort of you could say it's like a merger between you know dance club music mm. and and traditional tango music in a sense it's a little bit different because it feels like it has developed over time it's like a genre the genre of tango which has existed since the late 19th century uh, has developed in many ways over the course of the time that has passed since then and you know back when Astor Piazzolla who now is thought as very much a a sort of almost defines tango for many people. And it's the way that a lot of people get into tango. Uh, but he was quite revolutionary in, in his time in trying to bring classical music and jazz influences into tango. Hmm. And then, you know, a little while after him, people started introducing these these dance music elements. Hmm. So in the way, that's that's more of a sort of gradual shift rather than a sort of 
slamming together of genres. Yeah, I think uh, arguably it is very important, you know, from a musicological point of view, mm. it is important to have this experimentation in between genres where you take elements of different things and put them together. Mm. I think a lot of the genres of music that we have now, all the thousands of genres of music that there are, mm. a lot of them are direct results of experimentation that's happened when you've combined two together, you know. Right, exactly. I mean, obviously progressive rock is is obviously that i mean it is basically you know elements of jazz jazz fusion combined together with rock and roll music mm -hmm. and a healthy dose of uh, you know experimentation and exploration and then you get progressive rock mm -hmm. as well as your that imagery and stuff like that that goes along with it i think the part where for me it sort of turns me away is where it seems like this is being done specifically to see what happens when these two genres come together mm -hmm. rather than it being some kind of more organic combination. So, yeah, I think, like, the, baby metal is a fine example, really. Right. I mean, the whole the whole novelty of that is the fact that you've got these two things that don't naturally go well together. Right, right. They're taking two uh, contrasting things and, contra and both quite well-established genres of popular music essentially right which each have their own cliches both of which can be combined into baby metal right, right. yeah so that's um um yeah it's at that point where i sort of tend to and this is i feel the same way about the shamisen player who plays to pop music right like it again it it just sort of seems like this is the it's it's not the music that's interesting here. Mm -hmm. It's the combination that's interesting. Right. And and that for me, that's the point at which I kind of feel a little bit less uh, interested. Mm. Yeah, I think I probably don't find these things as interesting. Like you very quickly grasp what baby metal is trying to do, and and then most of it is that same thing. Mm. Uh, so there's not a lot of depth to it. But I must admit, I do enjoy it. Like. I enjoy seeing these these cliches that exist from both sides played off each other. Right. There's something fun about that. You know, it's not particularly deep or clever. And it doesn't have, I don't think, the same staying power. Like, I'll go back and listen to an album that I listened to 20 years ago and still find new things to enjoy about it. I suspect that will not be the case for baby metal. <laughs> <laughs> but the first time you hear it and you sort of see what they're doing i find that to be an enjoyable experience i i like mm. i like sort of spotting those little nods to particular cliches even though they're not particularly clever and just going oh yeah that's cute that's nice <laughs> you know yeah 